Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday where we distill the insights from the noise. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8am by searching for strategy skills in any podcast app and you can also get a written version with the links to all the articles, pieces and analysis we mention by signing up on firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. So here are the big themes we are noticing in the news this week. The first interesting article is one that appeared in the Wall Street Journal discussing the fact that HBO Max has finally signed a distribution agreement with Amazon Prime. What this means is that if you are an Amazon Prime member and therefore you have free access to Amazon's video platform, you can now sign up to HBO Max through Amazon Prime without having to have created a separate HBO Max account outside the Amazon ecosystem. Now, this is quite a profound article because of what the implications mean. There is really nothing stopping anyone from going to the HBO Max website and signing up directly for their own account. They can then download the HBO Max app and watch it on a smartphone or whatever smart TV they may have. But HBO Max went through a lot of trouble to negotiate the carriage or distribution agreement with Amazon Prime. And there's a reason for this, because distribution matters. And one of the things we see a lot of when it comes to discussions about digital and data and AI and all the new technology industries is that we put a lot of emphasis and a lot of focus on the product itself, but not so much emphasis on how we're going to get that product to the final customer. In the case of HBO Max, which is part of the Warner Group, which is part Warner Media, which is part of AT&T, there is nothing stopping anyone from going to the HBO Max website and signing up directly. HBO and Warner Media could have run billboard ads, television ads, they could have done a lot of things in that space. They could have created a campaign whereby if anyone searched for streaming stations, they would have shown up first in Google. They could have created articles whereby if people searched for streaming, they showed up first in the search results for Google. They could have taken out television ads. They could have done any number of things. Nothing stopped them beyond the fact that certain distribution channels are known for certain things. And if those distribution channels are already into people's homes, it's much easier to piggyback on that distribution channel. And that's what HBO Max has done. They realize that Amazon Prime has a huge distribution network. There's no point in trying to recreate that. There's no point in trying to spend the money of trying to replicate that because there's no guarantee they would even get the return. This is a key point. It's about controlling the last mile. You can do everything. You can sign the right licensing agreements to make sure shows like Friends, George Lopez, King of Queens shows up in your streaming app. And I'm not saying those shows are in HBO Max. HBO Max has its own shows 
like the entire network of HBO shows like Girls and so on. But you can sign whatever agreements you want. You can secure the content. You can have the biggest name stars. You can have the most popular content. But unless you have a mechanism to quickly get this to consumers, the friction, the switching costs, the discovery costs are so high that consumers don't sign up. And that's the problem HBO Max has found, is that not enough people are signing up. There are other issues, primarily the fact that they already have licensing deals going at cable companies, which limits the amount by which they can lower the price they want to charge people. But at the end of the day, distribution matters. And if you are launching anything, a business, whether it's digital, whether it's a restaurant, you've got to figure out how you're going to get your product in front of customers in the cheapest, fastest, and deepest possible way. And until you solve that piece of the puzzle, all you have is a product that's never going to find a final paid home. And that's a problem most companies face with. You can see companies today that may have a formidable product in their home market, but when they enter a new country, whether it's an Italian wine entering the United States or a French cheese entering the United States or a lamb from New Zealand going into another market, unless you figure out the distribution angle, you don't have a business. And I think the main lesson here, the big, big insight is that too often when we are talking about business, we think of business being everything we control, suppliers, the manufacturing or coding process as it may be, and the packaging of the final product. But we don't understand that distribution is maybe not the most important part, but it's as important as the other elements. And we have several distribution studies on the website. If you're a firm's consulting insider who's a member of Slides, we have two distribution studies. The first one is for a beverage company trying to fend off European competition. And the second one is for a telecoms company trying to fend off incumbent competition. What you can see is the detailed calculations that go out to mapping out a strategy, increasing distribution, aka also known as a channel strategy. The next interesting and I would say very important article we're reading is one that appeared in the Financial Times, which talks about the mass transit crisis facing New York City. The gist of the article is the fact that fewer people are riding the subway. And because the subway is funded through a combination of rider fees and taxes, there's a debate now whether the government should step in and allocate more tax money to the subway system given the fact that rider fees have declined significantly. And of course, the people who used the subway before are now working further away from the subway and don't need it. They may actually not want as much of their taxes to go towards an asset they're not using. There's many ways to talk about this, but a subway system is not just a subway system. It's the artery of a city. It's very difficult to imagine any world-class city anywhere in the world today that does not have a clean, functioning, safe, efficient, reliable, and well-maintained subway system. And the debate about funding subways is a difficult debate because the time over which decay occurs in a transit system happens over many years. The time during which people scramble around to fix it can last a decade. And the time to actually fix it can last very well another five years to, ten to, another five years to a decade. There is a precedent for this. We can look at New York in the 60s, especially the 70s going into the 80s. 
when lack of care in the subway systems became a proxy for the broader problems facing the city. And the question you have to ask yourself here is that how much of the subway's budget can you really cut? Because even if you have 50% or 20% fewer people riding the subway, the majority of those assets still need to run. 20% of people still need the same care and protection as 100% of the people. So the fact is how much of the subway costs are really variable, whereby you can simply move it up or down based on the riders or based on the number of trains you are running. Because it's not as if you have fewer people, you run fewer trains, you run the same number of trains on the same schedule, they just have fewer people on those trains. And fewer people on the trains means there's actually a greater chance of being kept alone in a carriage, which means the chance of crime goes up, which means the cost of patrolling the trains should increase. Hopefully not, but it could happen. So the question here is, you have an asset that's central to a city. How do you maintain that asset, given the fact that funding is collapsing? And the more important question is, what degrees of freedom do you have to minimize investment in this asset before it has a negative effect on the broader city? Now, if you're a firm's consulting insider with access to slides, we've got, from what I understand, two proposals and studies that show you the issues related to management of infrastructure assets when revenue drops. Whether it's a road, whether it's a port, whether it's a subway, it's a function of taxpayer revenue and revenue from usage. But, many thing, but one thing many people don't know is a lot of these publicly funded infrastructure assets, particularly like roads, a percentage of the fees they generate also goes towards something like a type of road accident fund, which is then used to compensate drivers during accidents. Now, that insurance mechanism is also underfunded in a situation like COVID where ridership rates go down. So when you are restructuring the physical infrastructure, you also have to be restructuring the insurance fund. So the, you know, the, the kind of analysis done is very different. The third big article we are reading, and for me, it's one of the most interesting ones of all, is the fact that a number of Asian countries have signed, which is one of the largest free trade agreements in the history of mankind. And it's a big deal. It's an important thing. It's a fantastic achievement. And I think, you know, kudos to everyone involved in putting this together. I don't want to talk about the merits of free trade and not free trade and what it means, but I want to talk about what it means at the basis of a company. Because let's assume you own a store, you own a company that buys up meat, cuts it up into little pieces and supplies it to a domestic market. What free trade actually means is that previously, if trade wasn't free, there was some kind of penalty or burden imposed on non-domestic companies trying to play in your market. What free trade essentially means is that all or most of those barriers are now going to be removed so that the only cost or only additional burden a competitor will bear if it wants to sell meat in your market, you know, beef or pork or whatever it is, is the additional cost of entering your market, but no penalties. So what free trade does is it forces companies to compete. I don't want to use the word merit, but it forces companies to compete without any artificial barriers. 
It forces companies to up their game. If previously you ran a business which was successful only because a government had erected barriers that made it impossible for anyone else to compete against you cost-effectively, which means when they entered the market, the penalty against them was so large in the form of a tariff that their fees and their cost was higher than yours and you could undercut them in prices, that would now fall away. So you have to find a way to compete. And that's the thing about free trade. It's good if you are able to compete. It's really bad if you're not able to compete. And what we would expect to see is a wave of consolidation going across these Asian markets. As the tariffs fall away and weaker players, which were succeeding because of tariffs, would now close, they'd be bought, or they'd be forced to merge to either bring in new skills or get the synergies and the economies of scale to compete against more fierce, capable, you can pick the word, competitors. So free trade is very good if you're a company that's been prepared to battle it out on free market principles. Free trade is very bad if you're a company that's been benefiting from some artificial tariff that's been protecting you and you have not made any of the difficult steps to transition away from benefiting from that tariff. Now, Firms Consulting Insiders and Slides members, you will see that there's several studies we have, but my favorite one where you can see step-by-step -step the analysis done is for a national post office, whereby the government has deregulated the sector, and what they realize is that the only business they have that can make it is their courier and freight unit. And what's interesting is to see how the company prepares for this, how they prepare to spin it off and basically have two businesses. One is the National Post Office, which is going to have to be subsidized basically in perpetuity by the national government, and the Korea and Freight Unit, which they want to spin off as a direct competitor to Amazon, FedEx, and UPS. And the whole discussions and the costing and the analysis of creating that business is fascinating to watch. The third, the fourth big story, and this one I particularly like because it gets to the heart of strategy, is a piece in Fortune magazine, which talks about how digital challenger fintech companies have started working more closely with established banks. It's an interesting article and you like it, but the reason I like this article is because it talks to something that we tend to forget about when we think about how to develop strategy. Whenever people talk about strategy, they like to focus on the fact you have to be a big picture thinker. You can come in with a, you know, I've obviously was a strategy partner and most of you reading this come from a strategy background. You go into the industry, you have a way of thinking about a problem whereby even if you lack subject matter expertise and industry expertise, you find enough things to fix. And I mean, that's for me the sort of catching point with consulting. Do you be happy that you found enough to fix to justify your fee and make the client happy? Or do you find the right thing to fix? I'll give you an example of this, right? I'm quoting now directly from the article. Many challenger banks have been able to thrive thanks to a 2011 law known as the Durban Amendment, which lets banks with less than $10 billion in assets charge merchants up to 1.5% on debit card swipes which is more than seven times what giants like Bank of America can charge. This is the thing about strategy. It's about the detail. Imagine if you had been working in a consulting firm and you knew nothing about banking and you had went in to advise a fintech, but you didn't know anything about this law. 
I'm sure you could find many opportunities for them to be better, more efficient, generate more revenue, but you probably wouldn't have discovered their biggest competitive advantage. And now I'm going to give you the deepest insight, the so what of the insight. Businesses are trying to find an edge. They are pushed back from finding that legal edge by the legislation that governs them. State, industry, city, whatever it is. Unless you understand the legislation governing you, you don't know where the edge exists. So a lot of business strategy insights comes from understanding the legislative detail around an industry. And I'll give you an example of this, right? When I was a consultant uh, and I did a lot of work in banking and resources and oil and gas and so on, when I would work for a banking client, the first thing I would do is I would look at the legislation governing them to make sure that we understand what is the room they have around which to maneuver and is there something we are missing? And when I was doing this, I, I know for a fact that a lot of consultants, MBAs and so on, felt that I was wasting time. But I remember specifically for one client, we actually found in the legislation governing this bank that their mandate, the act of government that governs them, says they should earn a return that does not exceed inflation, which means they should earn an economic loss because their job is not to make money, it's to distribute money to low-income people. Now, before we came along, everyone was saying the bank should make a profit, but we were able to show them that the reason why this bank exists is not to make a profit. Now, many of you will be saying, well, you know, you can talk to experts to have the answers, but not always. Companies that find an edge, they find an edge because they either saw something everyone had seen, but they had realized the implications are a lot deeper than people had thought, or they are seeing something no one had seen before. You know, in another situation, I remember doing a study for a um, major resources group. And we realized that for one of the divisions, had reclassified them not as a mineral extraction business, but as another type of business, they could get an enormous tax break. And it didn't require us to do a lot for the client to make some changes to the business so that the local government reclassified them. And it had a huge impact on their finances. It has a big thing that allowed them to be competitive. So it's a very simple thing. You're in business and the referee in business is a judge and the referee's guidebook is the laws. Now, you don't have to go to a judge if you follow the guidebook. But if you are in business and you don't know the legislation that's governing you, you're clearly missing out on some opportunities and you're clearly letting some other competitor exploit things that are not secrets because it's publicly available information. And that's the thing you've got to think about. That's the thing you've got to know. And if you're, a, if you're an insider who has access to slides, you're going to see several studies we have, particularly one around disease management, where we help a company understand how they can lower the cost of treatment by figuring out that there's different laws related to which countries they source drugs and medical supplies from. One has tariffs, the other one doesn't have tariffs. The other one has an agreement with the host country, the other one doesn't have an agreement with the host country. It's all about knowing the legislation. As a final piece of advice for everyone listening, I want to remind you of three things. As you go through listening to this podcast, the books, the videos, using slides and so on, 
It's important to understand that when we talk about leadership, it's not a formal title. You can be the most junior person that nobody may like, nobody may respect. They may take you for granted. They may criticize your work, but you can still lead. Lead is about showing the team direction. Even if they don't want it, it's about leading by example. And what I hope everyone does is they choose to be leaders. The second thing you have to do is always remember that everything about strategy is a promise. What's important is you implement. Whether it's a document you prepare for a client or for your own company, that's wonderful. But at some point, you either have to learn the skills to implement or you have to move into a position to implement it. It could even be about your career strategy. It's wonderful that you're listening to all these podcasts and we obviously appreciate you as a client and as a listener. It's wonderful if you buy all the books. But you've got to actually start taking what you're learning and rolling it out into your career. Which brings me to the third point. You have to be measuring what you are doing. Are you more influential with people with whom you work and communicate? You should be more influential if you're using a lot of what we teach. Is things going faster? Are you able to hit the right issues? Is there more agreement? Are things being done at a lower cost, higher rate of productivity, higher revenue? If you're not measuring what you're implementing, you don't know if it's working. Set your measurement cycles to monthly. Don't measure things weekly. It's very difficult to get enough traction from week to week. But in a month, yeah, you can step back on the last Friday of the month and say, okay, I've tried this approach. I tried this in a meeting. What happened? What didn't go well? You always have to be going through a process of iterations because everyone's going to have a unique circumstance. The team you're working with may require you to communicate in a way slightly different from what we recommend. So you got to say, okay, I only use an executive summary of my team, but I realize they want more details. So I'm going to make a little bit of a tweak. I'm going to add in a second slide with a bit more detail. But the goal is still to get them to agree to implement something so the company's bottom line and share price improves. Don't measure your success by your career progress only. In fact, the lead indicator for success is your company's success. You see it first. That's why it's called the lead indicator before you see your promotion. Your promotion is the lag indicator. You see it at the end after you've done everything right. But if you wait for a promotion, it's too late. You're not measuring the right things. Look for the lead indicator, which is success at delivery. And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com. And there is a deadline, so you should do this sooner rather than later. And you should write to support to find out the deadline. We will give you a complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. Some of the video courses will come out this year. Others will come out next year. So please write to support to understand all of the criteria. But as always, I hope you're enjoying this podcast series. And we will see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.